ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. You can help support the podcast by going to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and click on the Patreon donate button and join the table of ranks. In 1931, construction on an enormous apartment complex was completed in an area of Moscow called The Swamp, just across the river from the Kremlin. Known as the House of Government, this building became the home of the top echelon of the Soviet political and cultural elite and their families. But the House of Government was more than just a building. The structure and the people who inhabited it represented the Russian Revolution itself, a living and social space for the revolution's first converts, a laboratory for turning the dream of communism into a reality, and a dramatic site for that dream becoming a nightmare. In many respects, the House of Government symbolizes both the birth and the death of Bolshevism as a millenarian movement and the demise of the Russian Revolution. For more on these issues, I turn to Yuri Sloshkin for insight into the epic that was the Soviet House of Government. Yuri Sloshkin is the Jane K. Sather Professor of History at UC Berkeley and the author of many influential works on Russian and Soviet history. His books include Arctic Mirrors, Russia and the Small Peoples of the North, and The Jewish Century. His most recent book is The House of Government, A Saga of the Russian Revolution, published by Princeton University Press. Here's Yuri Sloshkin. So the, the House of Government, this, A Saga of the Russian Revolution, is a, is a massive work of over a thousand pages. So uh, the first thing I'm curious about is when did you realize the enormity of this project and, and how did that influence how you constructed its narrative? Well, I knew from the very beginning that it was going to be a big project. It is a very big building, uh, 505 apartments um, initially with lots of people. Uh, so I knew it was going to be big. That, uh, but it did grow tremendously as I was writing. And uh, I did change the design. Uh, the original idea was to contain the story within the building, to have it built, populated, then watch those people live their lives inside the building uh, and run everyone else's lives as they were living inside that building, and then watch them be arrested and taken to their deaths. That was the original plan. It would have been a much shorter book had I stuck to that plan. But then the more I read, the more diaries, letters, other documents I read, and the more elderly survivors I interviewed, the more convinced I became that I 
had to start much earlier. Uh, when they were young men and women in love, in love with each other and with the revolution and the idea of communism. And that in order to understand the shape of that building and the more important, the fate of its residents, I needed to introduce them much earlier. And so that's when I decided that I, I was, or rather realized that I was writing a, an epic or a saga as I call it. And and you say that in, in your introduction that there are three strains to this, this great saga. It's uh, part family saga. Another aspect is there is an analytical strain um, and a literary strain. And so talk about these three strains and, and how they relate to one another. Well, they are directly related to one another. And that was there at the outset, the idea to have those, those three. Uh, at the center of the book is a series of uh, family histories or revolutionary lives, stories of particular residents of the House of Government, uh, government officials who became residents of the House of Government and their families, and the stories of their lives from the time they were very young. And again, most of the central characters are, are men because they were the majority of the original members of the Bolshevik party, and they were the ones who would uh, run the Soviet state. They were the ones who um, would become so-called leaseholders inside the house of government. They were the ones qualifying to move into particular apartments whose size and shape uh, corresponded to their, uh, to their status. So anyway, so there are the stories of those people. Um, from the beginning to the end for the most part, or rather from the time they joined the party um, as young boys and girls to the time they were uh, taken um, to their deaths on the one hand. And so there, I talk a great deal about their um, lives and their loves and their friendships and their apartments and their furniture and their children and their convictions and the way those convictions changed over time and so on. Uh, and then there is, of course, the attempt to understand the meaning of those lives uh, and why they unfolded the way they did, why they came to the end um, that they came to. Um, why they organized their lives the way they did, uh, how they understood their lives, and so on, uh, and what they represented collectively as a movement. And so that strain in the book is a history of a, an apocalyptic millenarian sect. Um, its structure as a sect, the conversion experience, that all the members had to go through, um, the intense expectation of the end of the world as we know it, uh, a fervent faith in the coming of communism as the solution to most problems, the overcoming of the futility and contingency of 
human existence, um, and so on. The intense disappointment that many of them felt uh, when the prophecies seemed to have failed, the renewed hope uh, when Stalin launched his new revolution, the first five-year plan, and then the confusion, the agony, the happiness of life inside the house of government until the end came. Um, so in other words, that analytical strain has to do with the life cycle, not of particular individuals or families, but of a particular movement and organization. And I try to do it comparatively to make sense of what happened to these people. I look at similar movements elsewhere um, and use the comparison in an attempt to understand the uh, meaning of that story and the nature of its outcome. So that's this, the second one. And then the literary strain is important also for a number of reasons, for several rather reasons. Um, and that is first, that bo because books were extremely important in these people's lives. They spent most of their lives reading. They certainly spent most of their lives as young people reading in prison, reading in exile, reading in the various apartments they would rent, um, reading in order to understand um, the meaning of what they wish to see and to understand life in general. And so books are crucially important to their conversion uh, and to their lives. They read aloud to their children. They read aloud to each other. Uh, reading and talking about books was a crucially important part of their courtship rituals. Uh, of course, of their uh, reading about um, history, about the revolution, about communism. Some of the texts they read were, of course, sacred, uh, infallible texts. So there is that. There are the books that they read that are in some ways characters in the story as well because of their tremendous importance. Let me ask you about this importance of books and, and, and literary narrative. Did and, and it comes across in your text, this relationship between the characters of literary texts and then the characters of your book who are reading these texts. To, to what extent did you see the their relationship with books as providing both a narrative of their life, an ethic of their life, and also reflecting back that ethic to them, that they were indeed living the the life according to the the precepts of this religious tech religious sect that you're speaking of. Uh, well, you're asking, I suppose, two questions at once, right? One about the uh, the meaning that those books they were reading had in their lives. And those were not, as I said, not exclusively or even primarily Marxist texts. They mostly read fiction and they had their children read fiction. And then, as I say, they read fiction to each other. Um, and they commissioned the creation of works of fiction 
in their capacity as government members. They did consider literature to be the most important art form. Uh, they supervised it closely. And it was important to them, it was important to Stalin, and certainly to my characters inside the House of Government, who was writing about them and what they were writing about them. So just to finish answering your previous question, one way in which books were important was that they, the, the, my characters kept reading, reading more or less the same books. The second reason is that they had books written about them. And I discuss in my book some of those books that were written about some specific revolutionaries who lived in the House of Government or that attempted to mythologize, conceptualize uh, the experience of the revolution of these particular revolutionaries um, and of the meaning of the Soviet uh, experiment. So that's the second sort of literary dimension to what I'm trying to do. And of course, the third one is that not only were they reading books and not only were books being written about them, not only were they, many of them, actually writing books when they were reading inside, living inside that building, but of course, I was writing a book about them, right? And so that is, and I had to make certain decisions about that book's genre, uh, shape, structure, um, that are, you know, decisions that are literary, essentially. And so that's yet another way in which literature is central to the project. Uh, and then you were asking about about sects and millenarianism? Well, in a sense of, you know, here I'm thinking of the crucial um, place that, you know, pre-revolutionary late Tsarist literature played or literature from the 19th century in, in creating the ethic of, of a revolutionary. So here I'm asking what role did the literature that uh, these people are reading and engaging with but also producing – uh, adding to that ethic of being a Bolshevik, a member of this millenarian sect. Right. This was actually interesting because it was not uh, clear to most of my characters what that ethic really was. Some things were much clearer than others, but... Again, most of the books they were reading were 19th century novels, Russian and European. And certain things they did in their lives and certain things they did inside their apartments and certain ways in which they imagined their own lives were clearly based on the books they were reading or had read uh, as children. But those had little to do with this specific question of what it means to live as a Bolshevik. And that caused all sorts of problems and all sorts of soul searching inside that building because they found themselves living 19th century lives in many ways, particularly their duchess, less so inside the house of government, but very much so in their duchess, which they sort of imagined as 
19th century noble estates. Um, and they furnished them accordingly or tried to, and they thought of them that way, and certainly their children did. Um, but of course, those things came into conflict with their politics and their vision for future life and life under communism. And they, many of them felt that there was something wrong about this, but they didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't know how to, you know, this, how to prevent uh, the swamp. And that was, of course, the name of the area where the house was built from coming back. Yeah, if the idea of communism was to, of building communism was related to the idea of draining the swamp, you know, there was the swamp coming back, seeping back into their apartments, and they were really clueless about what it meant to be a good Bolshevik at home, as what, you know, a good Bolshevik husband was supposed to act like, or a good Bolshevik wife or good Bolshevik parents. They talked about it, but there were no conclusive, definitive answers to those questions. I want to talk a bit more about uh, the Bolsheviks as a millenarian movement, because this is, I think, one of the more controversial aspects of your House of Government book. So what made Bolshevism in particular a millenarian sect in, in your view? And how did people, what attracted people to it how did they, you know, convert, as you say, and, and and definitely a lot of the narratives of becoming a Bolshevik are indeed, you know, conversion narratives. Um, and and how did they they reflect in this millenarian sect on the present and and the the future horizon horizon of, of Judgment Day and communism? Well, they were not a party, right? They called themselves a party of a new type. Um which meant essentially that they were a sect. They weren't a political party in the sense of an institution that, or a movement or an organization that attempts to um, um, obtain power within existing institutions, right, within the existing state. Uh, they did not mean to reform existing institutions. They were a sect in the sense of being a faith-based group in conflict with the world uh, with voluntary membership contingent on um, individual conversion and a strong sense of chosenness, exclusiveness, and uh, ethical austerity. That's what they were to begin with. And like most such sects, they consisted mostly of young men, young men who had abandoned, again, to use the language of Christianity, uh, their fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, wives, children, uh, in order to join um, a charismatic leader who represented the sect's sacred center. Um, so in that sense, they, I mean, by most definitions, they were a sect. Now, they were not just any old sect, in my view, but a millenarian sect, uh, insofar as they expected the end 
of the world as we know it in their lifetimes. And they expected that end to be extremely violent. Uh, and they expected that violent cataclysm, uh, essentially kind of a revenge of the weak on the strong with the poor inheriting the earth, to be followed by a vaguely described state of total perfection. This is true of Bolshevism. This is certainly true of these particular Bolsheviks that I write about based on my reading of their uh, personal documents. And this is true of a very large number of movements around the world, including, you know, early Christianity and Islam and Mormonism and Rastafarianism and Jim Jones's People's Temple and David Koresh and, uh, and countless more. So uh, I don't call this religion. I find the term religion irrelevant, really, and uh, and worse than useless. But because, you know, the distinction between, you know, the conversation of just how transcendental something must be in order to qualify obscures the basic point that the plot line is the same or very similar. Right, and that's you were talking about horizons and uh, uh, the way they imagined the future, and that in that sense they were indeed similar to uh, you know great many uh, apocalyptic millenarian movements in that they believed that the world of oppression, injustice, inequality, uh, confusion futility would end in their lifetime or at the very, very latest in the lifetimes of their children. Um, and then, as I say, you know, they called it revolution, but there are other words could be used to refer to that dramatic uh, act, that terrible, bloody cataclysm that would then lead to what they called communism. But again, there are other words to refer to that uh, state of perfection or liberation or realm of freedom, whatever you call it, uh, that is in some ways an act of the kind of collective, this worldly salvation from most things we think of when we think about human life. You know, it, it's it's interesting, actually, it, I, I'm, and I'm wondering about the general historical context in which this particularly particular millenarian sect of of Bolshevism develops, because here we are at the you know the turn of the 20th century. Um, there's a lot of uh, searching. I mean, not just in in late Tsarist Russia, where people are are dabbling and and imagining a, a different different types of worlds and, and and kind of searching for some sort of meaning, um, but this is this is a thing that's going on, um, you know, throughout the Western world, a kind of mysticism of sorts. So, would you place Bolshevism within a broader context of a millenarian time? Of course, it was. I mean, as I say, millenarian movements. Um, appear at various times in the wide variety of places. 
although they are more common in some or within some traditions than in others. Um, but you're right, is that usually these movements appear at a time of confusion, disorientation, loss. And the um, and late 19th, early 20th century were such a time throughout Europe. Particularly, I think, uh, felt particularly intensely in Russia uh, and felt by so many, right? The Bolsheviks were just one group among many that thought about the approaching end. There were all sorts of Christian sects, socialist sects, anarchist sects, all of them united by this feeling that the world had reached uh, an impasse, that things had never been as unfortunate, as terrible, as unendurable. Um, and that, as I, that was very common throughout Europe at the time, but particularly common for, for reasons that I think most historians can name and list and agree on in Russia. Uh, and of course, again, if you think of the, for the, you know, like the time of Jesus of Nazareth is described in similar terms. And uh, is described as a time when dozens of teachers and preachers and uh, uh, and prophets were um, sort of producing their messages and their predictions. And the same was true of the turn of the 20th century in Russia. And of course, the same would be true of the 1990s in, in Russia. So, you know, the Russian Revolution began amidst confusion at the time of disorientation and loss, and it ended uh, in a similar age. The difference is that very unusually, the, the first of those periods ended up with one of those apocalyptic sects actually taking over the state. And the second one in the 1990s ended the way most of them do, with not much of anything, with kind of regular routine uh, resuming its course. And the various sectarians, uh, millenarians, apocalyptics, mystics, preachers, uh, hypnotists, and others disappearing and becoming as marginal as they usually are. Right, right, right. That's very interesting, actually. I hadn't think of this, thought of this parallel between these periods of, you know, anxiety, dislocation, disorientation, which, as you said, a lot of historians have dealt with in, you know, turn of the century Tsarist Russia, and continuing really into the mid-1920s, if you look at the proliferation of religious sects within the Soviet Union, but also at this 
another phenomenon in the 1990s in Russia, but elsewhere as well, where a lot of this uh, religious, you know, charlatans and leaders and mystics proliferate in, in, you know, Russian society. So let's get to the, the house of government apartment complex itself. What what was this building? The building itself. What did it? Uh, what was the go- its goal uh, and construction? What's the story of it itself? Yeah, well, your listeners can actually. I'm sure many of them, most of them, know this building, have seen this building, know what it looks like. They can go there, go to the museum um, on the ground floor, next to the to entryway number one. Um, they can look at it. So it's still the beauty of the story is that it's still there, um, still across the river from the Cathedral of Christ the Savior. Well, of course, most buildings, you know, one of them is much changed and the other one has been resurrected uh, and still diagonally across the river from the Kremlin. It was built as a building of of the transitional type that was its official a name, and that meant that it was uh, part communal um, because it had a lot of a vast network of public spaces meant for communal use. Yeah, you know, theater, movie theater, cafeteria, uh, walk-in clinic, kindergarten, daycare center, uh, library, laundry, gym, tennis court. Um, all kinds of rooms for painting and chess playing and orchestra rehearsing and dancing uh, and so on. Um, So that was the communal part. And the idea was that you really didn't have to leave that building for any any reason. It was a planned community. (laughs) To go to work. Right, exactly. But on the other hand, and that's why it was seen as a transitional building, as a kind of compromise. It consisted of of 505 um, family apart, fully furnished family apartments. Uh, so it was an uneasy compromise. The result of many debates about what communist domesticity should look like. No one really was happy with the way the House of Government turned out. No one considered it beautiful. Most considered it ugly. Uh, No one thought of it as truly the prototype of communist domesticity. But it was an important statement. Uh, And According to the original plan, it was going to be the first of a series. They were going to build similar houses um, in various places in Moscow. Uh, But it became clear early on that Soviet officials uh, didn't really like it very much, including those who lived there. Uh, And so it's Again, sort of a, an important part of the story is that it started out as a compromise. It was an uneasy compromise. And 
even though it was originally meant as the first in a series, it ended up being the only one. A kind of an exception, a building that is huge, that is important, that is, you know, symbolically significant, and yet also seen as a failure, as, as uh, really remarkably ugly. Uh, in so many different ways. So how did somebody get an apartment there? And though, despite its its ugliness and and dissatisfaction with the building, did some prestige also come with being having an apartment there? Of course. Yeah, of course. It was very prestigious in the 1930s. It was, for pretty much everyone who moved there, a huge improvement over their previous living conditions. You know, most of them had spent the 1920s living in downtown Moscow hotels that had been converted into dorms, known as houses of Soviets. Uh, And so they had been living in kind of makeshift apartments, or indeed in the Kremlin, which also had been kind of a dorm in the 1920s. Uh, and uh, this was a huge improvement for most of them. Um, people received apartments there according to their position within the administration, government, and party bureaucracy. It was meant for members of the Central Executive Committee and for the Council of People's Commissars, as well as certain officials from other commissariats. Um, And there was a very complicated calculus as to who moves into what apartment, who is entitled to how much space. Uh, Again, ironically, uh, and faithfully, perhaps, um, this prototype of communist domesticity consisted of unequal apartments. They were different in size, different uh, in prestige, with different views. You know, some the most desirable ones in entryway 1 and 12 facing the river had views of the Kremlin and of what was to become the Palace of Soviets uh, across the river. And of course, the same architect, Boris Afan, who lived in a penthouse apartment in the House of Government, was overseeing the building of his next and the world's last uh, building project. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of striking as a, a, a communist reproduction of the old Tsarist system of table of ranks and, and uh, Mesnichistva in terms of like, it, there's a hierarchy of, you know, first off, the elite is concentrated in one space. And then within that space, there's a hierarchy depending on their relationship to the center. Right. And that was true. That had been true of their lives in the Kremlin and in the houses of Soviets, in those hotels, you know, Nacional, Metropol, Lux, uh, and others. Um, those were ranked as well. Right, there was the so-called um, first house of Soviets, which was uh, Atel Nacional, 
second house of Soviet metropole, were at the top, joined later by house the uh, fifth house of Soviets on uh, Granovsky Street. Um, those were the most prestigious ones, and so depending on your place within the um, hierarchy, you could move into one um, or another of those houses of Soviets. So it was a very, very complex uh, kind of world of spaces related to positions. Uh, and as people moved from one position to another, they would try at any rate to move from one room to another or one hotel to another. And then the House of Government became sort of a huge space for those uh, relocations and human migrations as people would move from apartment to apartment to keep up with promotions um, and, or, or would be evicted as they would lose their position within the administration. Not, not, not an easy thing to do for the administrators. And there were all kinds of contradictory demands and claims uh, and uh, uh, and uh, betrayals and and denunciations, uh, pleas, and so on, that accompanied this process of moving in, uh, refusing to move out, moving within the house, and so on. I want to have you talk more about the the family aspect because early on in in your book, you, it's clear the these early Bolsheviks are intertwined intimately. They're marrying each other. Their children are marrying each other. They're forming. There's these longtime friendships that are formed early on in the in the revolutionary movement and in exile. Of course, they the relationships through work and sociability. So talk a bit about the the culture of of love and friendship and sociability within this house of government and this you know kind of enclosed planned community of communist planned community of sorts uh yes they my story begins as i said when they were young people in love with the revolution and with each other and with their cause and love also referred to friendship they loved their friends, their comrades, as comrades, as comrades in arms early on. And some of those relationships would uh, last into adulthood and follow them into the house of government. And then, of course, they would form new ones. Uh, but this it was not really an easy matter. Friendship for the original old Bolsheviks only existed as comradeship. In other words, you couldn't be friends with somebody who didn't share your faith. And many of them weren't really tempted. Most of them did not have friends who were not also comrades. Uh, it was much more difficult when it came to, to sexual love. Because everyone, or not everyone, but you know, some people within the party who took an interest in these things uh, commented on the fact that 
it was potentially a very dangerous uh, loyalty that threatened one's loyalty to the party. And so there were all kinds of conversations about it in the 1920s. And many of my characters um, made what some of their comrades considered fateful mistakes in marrying people from uh, alien classes or people who didn't, or falling in love with people, and we're mostly talking about men here, falling in love with women who weren't communists. So that was something that people wondered about in their diaries and talked about in their apartments. Uh, so another important relationship, of course, was um, between parents and children. And then again, they weren't sure because it was defined as uh, one of love, obviously parental love. But just how legitimate that was, was not clear and was not much discussed in the 1930s. Um, the children who grew up in the House of Government were quite different from their parents in that sense because their first loyalty was to love and friendship not to the revolution. Uh, so there were important distinctions within the house. And I mostly, when I talk about the building and its residence, I primarily talk about the, about the parents, about the first generation of revolutionaries, about these so-called old, old Bolsheviks, people running the Soviet state in the 1930s. They, uh, did not have friends in the sense of quasi-kin, people you are perhaps irrationally attached to or devoted to or fond of. They had comrades, uh, but they did have messy love lives and family lives. And they were surrounded by all kinds of relatives. And that was the most problematic uh, relationship. There were very few nuclear families in the House of Government. Most revolutionaries, most Soviet officials, people's commissars, deputy commissars, Red Army commanders, secret police officials, uh, gulag heads, lived in the same apartments with their parents, brothers, wives and indeed in some cases ex-wives, maids of course and governesses in some cases, uh, poor relations of all sorts. Um, and that was the problem for many of them, but a problem they did not have a solution to. Uh, but a problem that they would later when that knock on the door would come, they would think about and remember as perhaps one reason to feel guilty. Um, so um, one other thing I wanted to mention is that they did not really visit each other much within the House of Government. The House of Government is a common space, really belonged to the children 
who did form friendships, visited each other a lot, played in the courtyards, uh, around the house, on the embankment, um, in some of those public spaces, in, in the club or in above the theater and so on. The grown-ups didn't really, they were neighbors physically, they lived next to each other. They would run into each other in the courtyard and uh, in elevators and so on. But they did not really visit each other. And they did not act as neighbors in the kind of symbolic sense of exchanging uh, gossip and small items, you know, borrowing uh, objects and food items and whatever else neighbors do or looking after each other's children. That did not really exist inside the House of Government. Uh, friendship within the House of Government existed among the children, not so much among grown-ups. But they, they, there was sociability outside of the House of Government, though, in dachas yes. and in other places. And most important, and that was actually quite different at various um, rest homes, so-called, and sanatoria on the Black Sea, um, in the Caucasus, in Crimea. Um, that was different. That's when they actually socialized sort of as friends, where they would play billiards, or in rest homes, sort of weekend resorts outside Moscow. Most of them, again, former noble estates, frequently named after previous owners, unabashedly places where they would play and you know but they like billiards in particular or um, would play cards or go to concerts go for walks take the waters so to speak in Pichigorsk uh, and so on. now hundreds of, of residents in the house of government were arrested uh, and or evicted in during the great terror so how did the terror spread through this building, particularly within the context of so many people's lives being intertwined with each other? Well, there are different ways, obviously, of looking at it. First of all, from the point of view of those people who expected to be arrested or feared arrests, right? And so that took the form. And there were most of you listeners, I'm sure, know they've read all sorts of memoirs. Uh, or novels and about, or indeed history books about this, about you know waiting for that uh, doorbell to ring, or for the knock on the door, or listening to the elevator door banging outside, and that sort of thing. Uh, getting ready, packing a, a bag or suitcase, preparing warm clothes. Uh, so that's one thing. And then listening at night for the footsteps outside um, and so on. The experience of the search, the arrest, and the different forms that those arrests took from the obvious just knock on the door to some really elaborate um, uh, procedures. Um, and so certain things recur, and they are very well known and very common, which is the search, the witnesses, 
the crying children and women, the you know taking um, women away and then dragging children away from them, and so on. Uh, and people experience these things at the same time during this, you know, it took about a year and a half, right, for the uh, terror to unfold and for much of the House of Government to empty out, although it was never empty in that sense because people kept moving in as others were being taken out. So there's that. Then, of course, there is the experience of those who stayed behind, right? The remaining family members that they, they would mostly at first they would live in certain rooms sealed and then they would be moved to another apartment uh, usually along with other remnants of other families apartments that would become communal before being finally evicted from the house of government altogether um, and then there were people, you know, those who stayed, those whose families remained intact, at least for a while, had to decide how to deal with the tainted ones. And some helped them and pitied them, and some pretended not to notice them. Uh, some indeed would adopt the children of those people who'd been arrested. Some would not let them inside their apartments. So that varied a great deal, but it was, it was a time of uh, these arrests at night of difficult decisions, uh, of burning papers, getting rid of books, cutting out faces of, out of photographs, uh, fearing uh, arrests, and so on and so forth. Uh, but that again, that most of your listeners know about and have read about, but it's just the intensity that is remarkable in this building, the scale, uh, the fact that it was happening to not just neighbors, not just residents of the same building, but the people who had actually built the Soviet state, designed it. People who were in some cases presiding over those arrests uh, or who used to preside over other arrests. Now this is happening to them and happening to them in basically full view of other residents as they were taken down those stairs and uh, uh, into the cars waiting in the courtyards with people looking out from their windows. Uh, so that's what makes this story different. It's not what was happening, but just how it happened and how uh, crowded great terror in that house was. Yeah, the witnessing of it, you know, the the knowing that your neighbor's getting a knock at the door and you know, things like this. And, and so what was life like in this house of government after 1937? How did well, people... Well, 38, really. Yeah, 38, right, it, sure. I mean, there obviously there had been arrests before 1937 and there would be arrests after. But the, yeah, the period of 
daily or nightly arrests and and insane movement within the house moving in and out and up and down and in and out of apartments and so on that ended in late 1938 and it changed the house forever really it the house of government stopped being of government um new people moved in but they weren't as highly placed and then of course everyone would be evacuated um in 1941 uh and people who would come back or move in after the war in the, um, toward the end of the war would be different people uh the many more apartments would be communal apartments and many of the top party and state officials would prefer to live somewhere else partly perhaps because of the kind of ghostly nature of that building but mostly i think because their tastes have changed you know the sort of constructivist part of the building was never terribly appealing to most residents but now during the war and after the war for the new generation of soviet leaders um other buildings in other parts of moscow were now available and were much more appealing and finally we just you know as you know and everyone knows uh past the 100th anniversary of the october revolution so what is the story what what story does the house of government tell about the revolution uh well the story of the house of government is the story of the revolutionaries and so it's a story of the revolution insofar as it is a story about the original revolutionaries uh and it tells the story mostly as the house of government about the end of revolutions and of that particular revolution um and insofar as it can be generalized uh it's a story of impossible dreams um and the their bitter end or rather the story of disappointment and then the tragic fate of those who had invested so much in something that perhaps could not be done revolutions i suppose can be classified according to how radical their expectations are of just how profound the changes they want to make are and the russian revolution was certainly among the most millenarian messianic radical um, of so-called great revolutions and so the end was accordingly very tragic very abrupt i mean it, it's if your idea is to see the end 
of injustice and inequality, you are bound to be disappointed one way or another. And when your idea is to witness the end of that world of injustice, unfairness, exploitation, inequality, confusion, futility, and so on, to witness it, to see it end in your lifetime, and to usher in something entirely different, then based on what we know about human life, you're going to be bitterly disappointed. Uh, and then someone is going to have to pay for it. And so my story is about the people who dreamed that dream and then paid for it's not coming true. That was Yuri Shloshkin, the Jane K. Sather Professor of History at UC Berkeley and the author of many influential works on Russian and Soviet history. His books include Arctic Mirrors, Russia and the Small Peoples of the North, and The Jewish Century. His most recent book is The House of Government, A Saga of the Russian Revolution, published by Princeton University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Just like me